Alba Wheels Up is on a mission to be the best freight forwarder and customs house broker on the market. Our expert knowledge and experience provides the perfect solution for your freight forwarding needs. When you know more, your clients do better. Alba Wheels Up, success delivered. To learn more, visit us at albawheelsup.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at mentollc. This podcast is also brought to you by Undeniable Technologies. Constructing the backbone to global trade based on the standards of the world's largest trade organization, the Known Alliance. Undeniable is making global commerce faster, safer, more secure, and easier than ever before. Learn more at undeniable.net. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. On March the 1st, 2003, U.S. Customs and Border Protection became the nation's first comprehensive border security agency. And with that, they started to focus on maintaining the integrity of our nation's boundaries and ports of entry. Before CBP, security, compliance, and facilitation of legitimate trade and travel were conducted by all sorts of organizations. The consolidation of these roles and responsibilities allowed CBP to develop seamless security procedures while ensuring compliance with our nation's immigration, health, and international trade laws and regulations. In establishing Customs and Border Protection, Customs leadership ensured that the best traditions of its long and rich legacy continued. And it's quite a legacy. The U.S. Customs Service, which traces its origins and functions back to July 31st of 1789, has a noted role with all sorts of other federal bureaus and agencies. The Customs Service closed with the dawn of CBP, but its commissioners became the leaders of the entire organization and the majority of its staff and responsibilities came over to CBP. The first leaders of customs, as we know it, the Customs Administration, were two generals, uh, Generals Lincoln and General Lamb, one in Philadelphia, one in New York. And the two original customs jurisdictions were broken up as such, a more northern and a more southern. It was traditionally to speak of a revenue generating role they made sure that what came into the country was properly taxed, and they made sure also that what came into the country was legitimate. As you can imagine, given the time, there was a great deal of corruption, and these were political appointed jobs, very powerful political appointment jobs, because a great deal of America's dawning taxation came from these particular um, comprehensive tax programs, more than 50% 
as a matter of fact. So when you begin to look at where we are now, when you begin to consider where we are today, the fact that we've gone from a revenue generating organization to where we are today is massive. George Washington was inaugurated president in April 30th of 1789. And on the balcony of the first federal hall in New York, which served as the seat of the federal government until 1790, when that capital was moved uh, to Philadelphia. It was in that building that President Washington signed the Fifth Act of Congress. So the Fifth Act of Congress actually creates the customs service. That's why a long time ago, and I mean a long time ago, people from customs would refer to themselves as Fifth Act law enforcement. After the federal government moved to Philadelphia in 1790, the federal hall became the customs house for the Customs Collection District of New York. It was no longer the modern version of the customs house, um, a customs, the, the national customs um, headquarters. The second act of Congress on July 4th, 1789, established a system of tariffs on imported goods and merchandise in order to fund what would become our new federal government. And on July 20th, 1789, the third act of the first Congress of the U.S. established a system of real tariffs on the tonnage of shipments. So not the individual products that were coming in, but on precisely how much the weight of the goods that were coming into the country um, was coming in. So imagine that it wasn't the product itself or the harmonized tariff code, but by the value of the tonnage of the ship that came in. It was a very big difference from where we are today. July 31st, 1789, the fifth act of Congress of the U.S. established 59 customs collection districts in the 11 states and ratified the new constitution. Ports of entry under that jurisdiction of a collector of customs are designated by the act and the organization would soon come to be known as the U.S. Customs Service. So in reality, up until very recently, July 31st was actually the birthday of customs. And think about that, 59 customs collection districts, and they were all, of course, based on ports of entry, and the 11 true states that had ports of entry to speak of, is where a significant amount of American taxation was happening. And these were all done at ports based on the tonnage of volume of cargo that came in. Now, here's an interesting twist. On August the 7th of 1789, the ninth act of the first Congress established lighthouse services. And this is the first non-revenue responsibility assigned to the collectors of customs. So customs was designed to, uh, tasked to design, construct, and staff lighthouses. Are you kidding me? So, you know, Whenever I have a conversation about where we are with CBP today, I always bring up that in the 1800s, one of the first things that ever happened to customs in its infancy, infancy was they said, hey, you guys deal with revenue collection. If we want that revenue to come in, you should be responsible for making sure these ships are safe. Imagine that. You know, we didn't have a modern Coast Guard. So one of the first things that customs get stuck with, lighthouses, of course, because that makes all the sense in the world. September the 2nd, 1789. 11th Act of the First Congress of the United States creates the Department of the Treasury and the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, his name was Alexander Hamilton, becomes responsible for the management of all matters pertaining to the collection and protection of U.S. revenue. This is an important distinction for a lot of reasons because customs is part of the collection of revenue. And one of the things that Hamilton was very serious about was making sure that customs was focused on revenue collection prior to anything else and that their enforcement efforts should always be focused on revenue collection. 
1790, Congress authorizes Treasury secretaries to undertake the building of 10 customs revenue cutters. So customs starts to get ships. So these were actually um, a big pain in the ass for customs. There's no other way to put it. Customs had to come up with a way to design these ships. So they had to go out and hire naval architects. They had to find a shipbuilding area. They had to find crews, captains. And it starts this concept called the US Revenue Marine. So part of customs is suddenly this, this collection of ships that goes out there to deal with people who are trying to run blockades, people who are trying to smuggle, um, and also dealing with the safety of those vessels as they come into port. It's the beginnings of the modern Coast Guard. 1791, Congress authorizes the president to utilize the US Revenue Marine for the defense of the nation. So it also creates the concept of a special treasury agent. And from 1846 to 1860, agents submitted reports to the Treasury Department through these collectors of customs, quote unquote. First time you hear the term agent, where they were employed. After 1860, agents reported directly to the Department of the Treasury. Then, November 19th, 1794, American statesman and U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay signs the Amity Commerce and Navigation Treaty with Great Britain. And this was Jay's treaty. For those of you who did not smoke too much dope before you went to high school history, you would have learned about this. It provided for British evacuation of its Northwest Post by June 1796 and allowed settlers to decide if they became Americans or remain British citizens. With that, on January 29, 1795, the Naturalization Act becomes part of residency requirements from two to three years to introduce the Declaration of Intention. May 27, 1796, the Quarantine and Health Act goes into effect and enables the president to use customs collectors to enforce quarantines and state health laws. This is the first time that we see customs agents being used in a sort of uh, health or, 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 um, or medical capacity. 1789, we see the establishment of the Marine Hospital Service. So customs collectors are charged with collecting hospital duties and with construction, acquisition of marine hospitals. And in 1809, those same collectors are authorized to fix all the rules for the governing of the marine hospitals. First one was in Key West, by the way. June 25th, 1789, with the Naturalization Act, which was part of the Alien and Sedition Act, it permits the deportation of foreigners deemed to be dangerous and increases the residency requirements to 14 years to become an American citizen, which, by the way, is how I ended up. Um, well, we'll get back to that later on in the podcast. 1799, we get the first flag, the first ensign uh, or pennant of customs. It declares it to be flown on all their ships, and it's the first flag designed specifically for an agency of the federal government. So that's a great piece of customs trivia. The very first flag ever designed for the um, for any federal agency was actually for customs. Uh, now, in April 30th of 1809, with the Louisiana Purchase, it changes the borders of the United States, and we have to provide for even more customs inspectors. And in 1808, the importation of slaves in the United States is officially banned, though it continues illegally. And customs 
is plays an important part in stopping the illegal importation of human beings in chattel slavery. So one of the first federal law enforcement agencies to be engaged in trying to stop slavery was actually customs. In 1819, with the Steerage Act, it requires ship's masters to deliver lists of all aliens seeking immigration to local collectors of customs. And this is when customs becomes very involved in immigration. So now we have marine safety, ship safety, port safety, medical, um, and we, we have uh, revenue collection. We have trying to stop people from being engaged in smuggling. And then of course, now we also get engaged with immigration. Then uh, 1821 to 1875, an artist named Ross Brown shares the distinction of being one of the earliest special agents of treasury. Uh, Ross Brown was a very famous American um, artist and there have been a lot of, of important American artists who are collectors of revenue. One of my favorite, of course, is Herman Melville who wrote Moby Dick. Um, the gentleman who also wrote The Last of the Mohicans was also a, a, a customs revenue um, uh, agent. 1836, the commissioner of patents decides that he's going to use customs to make sure that uh, American patents are not being infringed upon. So now customs is involved in IP. December 22nd, 1837, we start the life-saving service in America. Guess who's involved in that? You got it, customs. One of the first ones was in Sandy Hook, New Jersey. And in 1848, uh, customs is staffing these things all over the country. Through all the 1840s, there's a massive crop failure and social and political unrest in Europe and the Irish potato famine starts and it leads to mass immigration in the United States. Because of that, America ends up getting engaged with a lot of inbound immigrants. Many of you who are listening today, this is when your families begin to immigrate into the US and uh, customs gets involved in dealing with that mass immigration. 1848, we have the Drug Importation Act. So now add the long list of things that customs has to deal with. They're now involved with making sure that they're examining risk ports of entry in New York, Boston, Philly, Baltimore, Charleston, and New Orleans of making certain that these drugs are actually effective and not dangerous. 1849, we see a rush of Chinese immigrants coming into America. Customs for the first time has to deal with a language truly foreign to all of them. There are no Chinese customs inspectors. Very few of these Chinese immigrants coming to America speak any English at all, nor do these ships captains, and it causes quite a problem. It leads to some of the first American federal law enforcement agents having to learn the Chinese language. They subsequently become teachers on the West Coast. From 1789 to 1853, as a matter of nothing more than expediency, Privately held buildings like banks and commercial buildings are purchased by the federal government for the express purpose of accommodating the needs of the custom service. One of them is the US Customs House in Philadelphia, which if you've never seen is gorgeous. It was a bank and it got turned into a customs house. Why? Easy, because it already had a vault. A lot of the customs duties that were collected then were collected in cash and many times um, customs houses were used as federal banks in cities that didn't have a federal dispensary. So that's why when you go into a lot of these cities today where you see the old customs house, you'll note that um, in the edifice of it, there are still things that show you that it was a bank. Pretty cool, huh? 1853 to 1939, um, they create a supervising architect to the treasury. And that supervising architect starts to build what becomes the modern customs houses. In 1853, U.S. Customs Border Patrol is actually established. And this is where we begin to see customs 
turning into two particular groups, one based on inspectors who look at cargo and one based on border patrol who are collecting taxes. Uh, but also these are mounted for the most part and they're on the US land borders, Southern and Northern. So believe it or not, we've had Mounties in this country since 1853. 1855, um, there's a place called Castle Clinton. It opens as an immigrant landing depot. And for the next 34 years, over 8 million people enter the United States through Castle Gardens. And it closes in 1890. Um, 1861, the Morrill Act provided for increases of import tariffs. The revenue funds in part union costs for the American Civil War. Customs collectors collected all of that. And then in 1862, the Bureau of Internal Revenue and Personal Income Taxes established by the Department of Treasury in order to fund the cost of the Civil War is created. But when the war ends, the Bureau and Income of Tax are abolished. So the idea of gathering taxes everywhere for the Civil War, like we don't need it anymore. And throughout this period, the Customs Service continues to be the major source of funding for the U.S. Treasury. So even then, most of the money was being collected by the U.S. Treasury. Now, it's not until May 25th of 1862 that we finally get a USDA. So until then, we didn't have a Department of Agriculture. But guess what? Customs is actually from the very start told that they have to deal with enforcement for USDA. The Central Pacific hires Chinese laborers starting in the mid 1860s to help with the labor and construction of the railroads. And then the Naturalization Act happens in 1870, which excludes Asians from becoming Americans as well as American Indians. And Customs unfortunately has to deal with that um, enforcement. The real crazy part of the um, continued difficulties of customs expanding role really starts again in 1902 with the public health and marine hospital service and public health service being put into place, as well as the Chinese Exclusion Act. These are all stuffed into customs unfortunate hands, and they have to be the ones that actually administer that and enforce it. Nothing really big happens until 1952 with the Immigration and Nationality Act and the Customs Cooperation Council, where we try as a world to come up with ways where we're going to establish how we're going to enforce customs um, for immigration. And customs in the US says the best thing to do is allow custom services to be engaged. So everything stays relatively stable until the 1960s and 70s when customs gets involved in the drug war. Because of their place at the borders, it's determined that they're in a better place than anybody else to be engaged in that particular service to the nation. <clears throat> and of course, things get a little bit wild um, when we start talking about the 2000s. Probably the most important thing that happens September the 11th, 2001, with the attacks on our nation. And that, of course, creates the Terrorism Response Task Force on September the 19th, as well as the Office for Anti-Terrorism and the Federal Air Marshal Program. All of these places were, at first, most of you may not realize this, but U.S. Customs Special Agents support the new program of the Federal Air Marshal Program. Many of them were actually customs agents. And the, um, the terrifying notion here was someone has to hold all this together. The creation of Department of Homeland Security is first talked about. And we have the beginning of the CSI, the Container Security Initiative. The core elements of that would eventually be turned into what we all get comfortable calling CTPAT. On November 25th, the Department of Homeland Security is established, which becomes the single largest government agency after the Department of Defense. 
and customs as we know it slowly ceases to exist. Um, you know, fast CT Pat and all the rest of it becomes so big and so voluminous that customs has to change its mission. And then on March the 1st, 2003, that's exactly what happens with the establishment of CBP, Customs and Border Protection. It's created as part of the Department of Homeland Security. And CBP is transferred over from Customs Service and Border Patrol and the Department of Agriculture, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service and inspection functions of the US Immigration and Naturalization Service. And at that point, Customs becomes America's face at the border. And if there's a law that is enforced at the border, CBP manages it. Because of that, just about everyone involved in CBP has a multi, multifaceted, truly integrated mission, which on the face of it seemed like the right thing for everyone, but it actually became the watered down version of everything. That history rich and beautiful a tradition is what we'll be talking about today on Trade School. I thought it might help you to know a bit about it before we got into my opinion. Stick around. Welcome back everyone to the Trade Geek Podcast for July 4th week, 2021. Thank you for joining me on what is a solo edition. And it's a solo edition because I couldn't find anybody who was willing to get in the hot seat and actually talk about this topic with me. Um, people are hesitant to discuss change when it comes to CBP. And I think a reason for that is because they're worried that showing any kind of dissent with the way that customs is managed or the way that customs does its job may be perceived by a law enforcement agency as some sort of betrayal. Um, and for those of you who tuned in this week, hoping I was going to sit here and bash customs, you clearly do not know me. I am a booster, big fan, you know, um, I came up in this industry with a number of mentors. Uh, one who's been on the podcast in the past, Phil Coughlin, taught me how to do business, you know, how to be a businessman. Uh, one of them, Jerry Peck, taught me how to be a consultant, which meant how to take the skills that I had and to apply them in a way that would allow me to make a living. And then the third was a gentleman named Ed Quas. And Ed Quas, Ed Quas, I don't have enough time in the day to talk to you about what an incredible man Ed was. Ed was a, he's a veteran, he was in the army. Ed was an early Green Beret, I believe. And when he got out of the army, he took a job as a customs inspector and he turned that job as a customs inspector into a career of service to this country for the customs service. And he made it up the ranks, through the ranks, from being a customs inspector all the way through management. He would eventually become the assistant commissioner and at times be the actual acting commissioner of customs, the customs service, not CBP, the customs service. And he was a force of nature wrapped up in what can be best described as an encyclopedic knowledge of the inner workings of one of the most enigmatic government agencies. And I think that's the best way to put what customs is. It's enigmatic. It's a riddle. I've been working with customs now for 25 years, which is 
professionally, you know, I dealt with customs earlier than that, of course, but professionally for 25 years. And I spent this last weekend up in Castine, Maine, hey, uh, up there at the Academy. And while I was there, I got to spend time with some of my old classmates, one of whom is also involved in customs, Jeff Simpson, who we call Homer for obvious reasons. He is um, engaged with the compliance area now, um, a number of different regulatory sides of compliance at C.H. Robinson. Prior to that, he was a trade consultant, much like myself. And he has an engineering background. He's deep in the academics of history. He's a very talented customs house broker, a great speaker, an amazing writer. Um, you know, my, my classmate who's a ship's master, my, um, my, my old roommate who, who's uh, going to sea right now on a drill ship, and uh, a good friend of mine who's basically a pig farmer now. Um, he, he runs his own farm after almost 30 years, I guess, of dedicated service. He's retiring. Anyway, uh, the whole point of the story was, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, how on earth did I end up doing this job and, and looking at Homer, you know, um, how did we get wrapped up in this? And the deal is transportation is transportation, trade is trade. And from the outside working with these government agencies, it's easy to forget that in the end, they're just people. They're people who are dealing with their own rules. Now they're enforcing them which puts them in a different situation from us, but that's all it really is. Customs is a bunch of people who every day are working within the framework of rules that have been established in part by them, but they've mostly been dictated to them through policy, through regulation, and through centuries, because we are talking about centuries, centuries of outside influence and outside events that have caused them to create guidance in the road, whether it was the need for this country to have a form of taxation or dealing with an onslaught of immigration, dealing with marine safety, dealing with the safety of food, of drugs, the list just goes on and on and on. And customs to a reasonable extent has been the victim of their own capacity to get things done. They're good. They've always been good, you know, um, and not to mention, they've always been everywhere. Customs was the first ubiquitous law enforcement agency in America. They were at every major port, which meant that they were at every major city. If you do anything uh, with regards to academic research in history, what you'll learn is every major country in the world that's ever risen to power has had a direct link to a water system. That includes Rome. So every, every major empire that has risen to greatness, has had the ability to move cargo down a major waterway system, and they have had passable roads. Rome in and of itself, one of the most important things that it did was to establish those, those roadways. Now for America, what they, they figured out quickly was that these seaports, these ports and, and the power that came along with them, these were the gateways, the doors to riches. And politically, they could be easily manipulated and corrupted. And it would be ridiculous. It would be naive to think that there was not a great deal of political corruption associated with customs in its early days. But at the same time, there was a great deal of good that could be done by customs. These individuals were in every major American port. And that meant that anything coming and going could be observed by them. Statistics could be gathered. And you could get a really good sense for how our country was doing simply by taking a look 
at what was happening from a commercial standpoint through customs eyes. And if it had to do with business, if it had to do with safety, and if it had to do with us being worried about what could enter the country, they were just the most logical group of people to reach out to. Makes sense, right? And that's how, for the course of, we're coming up on 300 years, customs has always gotten stuck with a more a broader idea of enforcement. I, I, I hesitated at doing, I guess, what came out to about a 12-minute history lesson at the beginning of this podcast as a separate piece of audio, mostly because I didn't want to bore people. It's kind of hard to make the beginning of customs interesting, frankly. But the stories of General Lincoln and Lamb are important because these were folks who knew how to push people around and push money into the pockets of the government. And they weren't afraid to crack some skulls when it came down to it. They knew sailors were tough people. They knew they were cheats. And they knew that the merchants that were working with them were going to cut every corner to get their money. They weren't going to put up with it. Customs started as a group of people that were meant to be here to gather and collect taxes. They weren't on the side of the trade. That's not what they were meant to establish when all of this first happened. And today, you know, 2021, I can tell you that going back to Mr. Quas, they have a they have a very difficult rope to walk across on this tightrope. When Mr. Quas would bring us in, when Ed would bring us in to talk to customs, he'd always remind us these are people who are trying to do a job where they themselves are trying to enforce the law, but they are under ridiculous pressure, political pressure from Congress, you know, from very powerful, multi-billion global concerns, massive companies that's putting pressure on them to also facilitate trade. So it's this, this balancing act of, I've got to deal with the fact that I... I, I'm a gun-carrying badge, you know, badged member of federal law enforcement with zillions of laws, and I'm also trying to do what's best for the trade because at any given moment, my boss's 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 boss is going to get a phone call from a senator or an aide from a congressman or, heaven forbid, somebody from the Department of Homeland Security saying, we just got a phone call from insert massive billion-dollar corporation here. And they're, they're sick and tired of the way things are going. Make no mistake about it, guys and gals. There's a lot of regulatory capture that goes on in global trade. Major U.S. corporations are always throwing their weight around. So that's the situation they're in. And when I, when I posted the other day on LinkedIn that I, I, I don't think customs is getting a fair shake, while at the same time, I think that this... This move towards the idea of CBP has not been ultimately what's best for the trade, even though it may have ultimately been what's best for the mission and focus post 9-11. And I don't know if that was the best mission. And I don't know if that mission was best for the country. And I don't want to get into a political discussion, but when customs became this one face to the border for all things agriculture, safety, border protection, immigration, um, the you know war on terror, the war on drugs. It it feels as though the part of helping legitimate trade was really left out to dry. There are more people who work at Chipotle, 
making delicious burritos, you know, handmade, uh, bespoke burritos, tacos, and bowls for Americans than there are working at customs. And customs is bringing in $81 billion of tax revenue a year. I didn't look up what Chipotle paid in federal income tax. I probably could, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's nowhere near that. And that's not to, you know, I said, that's in no way to dismirch, uh, dismirch Chipotle. I think they make a tremendous product. I'm a big fan. Um, very big fan. As a matter of fact, I can't have it now on my diet. Boy, would I like to, but um, you know, the point I'm trying to make is we, we, we value the labor making us in that particular metaphor. We would value the labor that's making those burritos and tacos as a society more than we value the labor that is supposed to be dealing with facilitating trade, keeping the borders flowing, dealing with immigration, dealing with the war on terror, dealing with the war on drugs, and enforcing the laws of just about every federal agency at the border. There are 400 separate laws and all the associated you know, subsections that go along with them that customs is enforcing every single day. We're getting lost in that shuffle. And when I say we, I mean the trade. Particularly if you look at what's gone on over the past four years with how customs has been so engaged in border protection. I was frustrated when the border crises have been happening, when people engaged in trade work were being pushed to the border because of the crisis there. These are people the trade needs. And in my personal practice right now, working on my own has been great for interacting more with customs because I'm not as, I'm not as concerned about the, the lack of benefits for the corporation I work for. I've been very fortunate to work with some massive companies. I worked for Crane, I worked for CH Robinson, I worked for Expeditors. These are three of the, you know, well two, CH Robinson and Expeditors are predominant massive global forwarding companies. Crane probably is more of a, you know, a mid a mid-sized flyer who does massive work in a couple of gigantic industries. But what all three of them have in common is they've got to work with customs on a broader scale, okay? They have to work with customs as a customs house broker. They have to work with customs and and deal with them on a law enforcement perspective much more broadly than Mento LLC or Undeniable Technologies has to. So I can have much more honest conversations on behalf of my clients. And in doing so, I'm happy to tell customs right now, this absolute quagmire that's happening at the border over de minimis and 321 and chapter 86 entries, it's a clown show. It's a clown show. We're coming out of the pandemic and we need a focus on coming up with a way to expedite e-commerce. And it's here for us. There is a way to do it but we're unable to focus on it because you don't have the money or the people or the time to work directly with the trade who has solution after solution after solution ready for you. They just need you to cooperate with them right now. But honestly, there are rules that stand in the way of that rules that were put in place a long time ago that are frankly archaic that they can't get around. It's not customs fault. It's, it's Congress's fault going back in some cases, a hundred years. There is not enough time in the day. There are procedural issues that they have to deal with. And then of course, there's the fact that they are wrapped up in a massive bureaucracy now. A bureaucracy that has them focused on 70 different things. They can't 
get the mission done because they're looking everywhere. And I think, you know, I, I ask everybody that comes on the show, you know, the final question I ask is if Uncle Pete had a crazy magic wand and I could wave it and you could have any job in the world, what would it be? And people have given us some great answers, fighter pilot, actor, rock star, you know, this goes on and on. I've always said I would never want to be the commissioner of customs, but I'm going to take that back. And I'm going to say, if I could be commissioner of customs for one day, if I could be commissioner of customs and border protection, I would, for one day, I would try to get back under treasury. And then this is the reason why I would much prefer that there was, and, and I'm being brutally honest here. I would much prefer that there was C and BP. I would much prefer that there was border protection and that there was customs again, that there was a U.S. Customs Service and that that U.S. Customs Service was part of Treasury again and that it went back to what it was supposed to do, which was facilitating trade and collecting revenue. And that border protection was border protection. And I think it would make a lot more sense if they shared data because we can do that now with ACE to these other government agencies. And we task those government agencies with their own enforcement. There's ways that it can be done by using algorithms and statistics that would put them in a position to do a better job of enforcement. I don't think it's fair to continue to ask customs to widen their wingspan every couple of years to include more and more things about inspection um, criteria and, and, and different ways of inspecting products. All you're doing is making them 20 miles wide and an inch deep. So is that possible? Sure, anything's possible, but I just don't see it happening. This is one of these moments where I have to honestly look at what's happening around the world and come to grips with the fact that as much as I might want something to happen, it's never going to happen. The government, our government, bases its power and its usefulness on precisely how much budget it has. And DHS has a massive budget and customs benefits from that. And the fact that it has so much responsibility gives customs the right to demand a massive budget. If you were to take customs out of border protection, I think you would miss out on a lot of that as much as the trade needs them right now. We are, we're choking on the change. We're choking on the changes to e-commerce we're choking on the regulatory pressure that we're currently on. And, um, you know, sadly, we're choking on congestion issues and changes to making our supply chains more resilient. We need customs to act in partnership again. I'm not saying that they don't want to. They want to. But I don't think they have the resources necessary to do that. And customs wants those resources. I've never once in my entire career sat down with anyone from, C from customs or CBP and had a conversation with them where they've said, oh yeah, we're so well-staffed right now. And that's ridiculous. They've always needed people. And, and oddly enough, as soon as they get those people and they get them assigned, they get sent off into something else. They get moved off to another mission. So I think the thing I want to leave you all with today about this podcast is we need to start thinking as a community about how we can apply pressure back into the legislative side of things to demand that customs comes up with a way to put that side of their business, which is what it is, that piece of what they do to facilitate trade 
into a more meaningful way and not, and not just some other partnership organization, but creating a methodology for real worthwhile communication between us that isn't like COAC. You know, COAC has turned into a suggestion box where the members of COAC sit there and opine deeply about the things they wish customs could do. And everybody says, oh, harumph, harumph, what a brilliant idea. And then some things get done and most things don't. And COAC has honestly turned into something where very large companies block great ideas because they're not in their best interest. I'm sure I'll get some pushback from that. But again, these are things that need to be said. COAC should not be an organization of large companies and, and massive organizations telling customs what's best for them. COAC should be a collection of individuals, companies, lawmakers, academics. It should be a, a multifaceted uh, organization that's bringing up people who are able to sit down and talk about what's best for all of trade, not just for parts of trade. And honestly, the ideas that they come up with ought to be vetted by a broader spectrum of people. We have to find a way to collectively partner with customs where we're not just sitting there complaining and then demanding that they change what's best for the country. We have to come up what's best for the country and find ways to do it together. I complain a lot about CTPAT. I'll continue to. If you want to make a more secure supply chain, you've got to make it mandatory for certain types of countries, companies. If you want to make a more secure supply chain, you have to create actual standards that companies have to follow. It can't be so wishy-washy. And these standards have to be difficult to actually obtain. Importer assessment, um, you know, ISA. If you want ISA to get someplace, if, if you want, you know, a company to actually audit itself, you have to make it mandatory for the top 5,000 US importers. Why is it that I can be a publicly traded company, but then I have to have an independent auditor come in and audit my stuff? You should do the same thing. Customs should expect that if you're a significant importer, you should have proof that is submitted to them every single year that you have an internal audit, self-assessment. Why is that so difficult to, every single one of you that is a major US importer, you should already be doing this. And there should be a concrete reward for doing it, namely that you are not audited. Second of all, that you have access to people at customs that other people don't. And that seems fair to me. You should also get a tax deduction, dollar for dollar tax credit for doing that work. These all seem like reasonable suggestions. And I, I can't give you an honest reason why they're not being at least considered. But to expect customs to continue to broaden their law enforcement responsibilities and for the trade to continue to sit here and think that, well, these guys will just get to it when they get to it, when they're done dealing with a migration crisis, when they're, when they're done, you know, dealing with a drug war, when they're done dealing with this and done dealing with that, we're going to be sitting waiting for a long, long time, folks. It's time to carve out the areas of trade from everything else and let this agency go back to being what it was. We have the infrastructure to let customs be part of DHS as border protection and let customs go back to treasury. And that's what would be best. I told you that this season we would talk about how we could fix things. I didn't tell you they'd be likely. Sadly, that's where we are today. And that's it on this topic. But as you weave yourself into this July 4th and as you get excited for this long weekend, just wanted you all to take a minute and think about Alexander Hamilton and what he must have felt like having to come up with a way to make money for this country 
by gathering taxes. Think of all the brilliance that went into what he wrote. And he did write it. He had very little help on creating the first custom service. Think about how far it's come. Take a minute to think about the mission of the people at CBP and how hard that is. And um, be a little thankful for the country that we have and what we've built here. Looking forward to uh, the next episode. And I am so incredibly appreciative for all of you who listen. Have a great July 4th weekend. We'll see you again next week.